Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly. And pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Grab the bulletin. If you don't have one, steal your neighbors. Do whatever you have to do. And I want you to write down at the top of it. We're going to be talking about the incarnation today. I want you to write down, He is just like us. He is just like us. That this is not some distant, remote God who is nothing like you, cannot identify with you, who doesn't know what you're going through. That in the incarnation, in the coming of Christ, he was made flesh just like us. But I want you to write down the second half of that statement. He is just like us, and here's the second half. He is nothing like us. He is not like you. He is not a human who is frail and struggling and prone to sin and temptation yielding to that temptation. No, he is the incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has existed for all eternity in glory and majesty with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. No, this Jesus is nothing like you with regards to his divinity, and he is just like you with regards to his humanity. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, which I I told some of the guys, our Spurgeon Society guys uh, are studying through, reading through this book together. And I said, I'm at a bit of a quandary because Packer's chapter on the incarnation is so deep and so rich and so well put together and well thought out. It would be a disservice not to just read that chapter on Sunday morning. I fear I will just fall into plagiarism. So I'm going to attempt not to do that this morning, but I would strongly encourage you, if you've not read J.I. Packer's Knowing God, to get that book, secure it, and then pour over it. Here's what he says. The Word became flesh. God became man. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality, and the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing, in fact, is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Nothing, if we really think about it, is more staggering to our understanding of God and Christmas and salvation as this mystery of the incarnation. So this is Christmas Sunday. On Christmas Sunday, I'm not going to tell you the narrative of what happened with Jesus and Joseph and Mary and Bethlehem. You can read those details for yourself. You can find them in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. The the story is in there, but I I think there's a danger to us in a time when there's so much confusion, confusion and misdirection around Christmas. Let us not mistakenly fix our gaze on Bethlehem. John's gospel, which we're going to read, we we read it earlier, we're going to read it again together, uh, gives us none of those details. As if John, uh, separating himself from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, says, don't put your focus on the wrong place. The, The event is not in Bethlehem. The event is in the incarnation. It is in Christ himself. 
So rather than fixing our eyes on Bethlehem, rather let us fix them on the transcendent, eternal, almighty Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, who for all eternity was robed in glory and splendor and majesty, and yet 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, yet for our sake became poor. Folks, consider with me what it means for the eternal, mighty, majestic, all-rich God to become poor for you. And here's my prayer. Our prayer is that our feeble consideration of this, looking even just for the next 45 minutes into the incarnation, would call forth worship in the hearts of his people. That, that's our goal for this morning. This isn't a takeaway so that I know something, I, I'm smarter, I'm more educated. It's not that I, I could be entertained by a sermon. I pray that you hear the incarnation this morning in a way that makes you worship better, deeper. Nate Pickowitz said this, Christmas, this is one of your fill-in-the-blanks, isn't about a baby in a manger. It's not. That tends to be, we, we feel rather self-righteous as we decorate our houses uh, with nativity scenes and Jesus and Mary and Joseph, especially if the ratio of Jesus is greater than the ratio of Santa within your house, like you've really achieved some level of spirituality. Nate reminds us Christmas is not about a ma baby in a manger. It's about a God coming to earth on a rescue mission to save his people from their sins. That's what this is about. That's what Christmas is about. It's what the incarnation is about. So as we look again at these verses, can we just pray together? Can we ask that God would speak miraculously, supernaturally through his word to us in this room this morning and then through us and through some of the things that we see in this world around us to those who do not know him? Would you pray with me? God, we are not praying this morning that we would be smart enough to figure this out. We're not praying this morning that we would have a good Christmas because we understand all these things and, and, oh yeah, by the way, we got all the gifts that we wanted. We pray, oh God, would you amaze and overwhelm our minds and hearts and lives again today with the mystery that the greatest gift ever given to humanity was born in Christ Jesus, that incarnation where God put on flesh and dwelt among us. I pray, oh God, not for intellectual ability. I pray for revelation. I pray that your spirit would reveal Christ again this morning in such a way, in a way I'm not able to do by just reading through the scripture and talking through the scripture. I'm praying, Holy Spirit, would you speak to your people and awaken faith in them? Would you speak to your people and open eyes to see Christ more clearly that we might worship him more faithfully, we pray. Amen. Look with me at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So the Apostle John is writing this gospel account to a world that is shaped by Greek philosophy. That's the context. That, that's the audience he is writing to. So he's not writing it to you and I, which is why he starts out with this phrase in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Now that only makes sense to you either because you've spent time in church or you've heard Christmas sermons before. 
outside of this context, in the beginning was the word. It's not something that makes sense to us, and yet it makes perfect sense to a Greek world. Because the Greek world was influenced by this Greek philosophy, this idea of the word. This is like many of you who are movie buffs, who if I said to you, the force would know exactly what I'm talking about. Are they, it's that, and it's actually that kind of imagery, that there is a power, that there is a supernatural force that is out there that was called the word. The Greek word is logos. And so he uses this phrase that made sense to that context, to that culture. In fact, we, we can look back and go, well, that's sort of strange that they would believe that there's sort of this impersonal, godlike force out there that is is directing human events and causing human events and causing things to happen in the world, except we have this exact same thing when people talk in our scientific day and age about nature. If you notice, when most people talk about nature, they don't mean like nature as it exists. We look around and observe it. They're talking about nature as a force, nature with a capital N, a God-like nature. What can cause a difference in one genetic system to evolve and morph and change into a different genetic system well all it takes is nature time acting upon it 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 is it is not a passive thing it's actually an active thing it's the same idea of some supernatural force that exists out there well current to john writing this book there was a hellenistic greek uh, influenced but jewish philosopher named philo who said actually the way that this logos works, that this word works, is similar to what we saw in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has story and story, especially when you look at the wisdom literature in Proverbs, uh, where you see wisdom being personified, as if wisdom was a woman calling people to herself. You see that, and if you're taking notes, just jot down Proverbs 8. Don't read it now. Go home and read it later. Uh, There's several examples of wisdom being personified, that it's something that we can find and seek and know and grow in, And Philo combines those two ideas, and he says, actually, the Logos is God's active agent in organizing, creating, and sustaining the world. Now, think with me. God's active agent in organizing, creating, and sustaining in the world. That sounds like a description of who? Of Jesus. So John points to that and says, actually, that's Jesus. This word that is going around, it was one of those, like, pop culture words, these phrases that go around in our day and our time as well. And John hijacks that, and he says, this is Jesus. Look at John 1.1. First verse here, he existed in the beginning. This Jesus is eternal. His existence in the beginning predates creation. It predates mankind and humanity in this earth. Uh, Verse 1 also tells us he was with God. So he was there in the beginning. He's an eternal being, and he was with God. That is, that is something slightly separate from God the Father. So he puts him as two different categories. Yet the second half of that verse, he says, actually, he was also, he was God. So he was with God. There's separation. And he was God. There's unity. There's togetherness. Uh, right off the bat, he's pointing to the Trinity. This Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this mysterious union that if I ask most of the people in this room, Do you understand, do you believe in the Trinity? I would say, most of us would say, yes, of course I do. Only if I ask the second question, can you please explain it to me, we would begin to stutter and stammer and lose our words because the Trinity is actually a profound mystery. And yet John in simplicity points to it. He says he was with God, 
separation, and he was God. Unity. Verse 2, it's almost like he's repeating himself. In case you missed it, he was in the beginning with God. Except in ancient writings, especially in Jewish-shaped ancient writings, uh, the, the Hebrew language didn't even use any punctuation at all. So if they wanted to make a point with an exclamation point at the end, they repeated it. So what do we find in the first two verses of John 1? He was with God in the beginning. Oh yeah, he was with God in the beginning. This is as if John is putting a giant exclamation point on the divinity of Christ right before he's going to say anything else about him. Verse 3 tells us he was the creator of all things. Verse 4 says, in him was life. Now we, we could just stop and ponder on that the rest of this morning, that in Christ alone is found life. In Christ alone is found our hope, our sustaining, that which takes us from dead in our sins to alive in Christ, that which even gives us the breath that we are breathing right now. And yet he doesn't just pause there. He says this life that is in Christ is actually the light to all men. It is beautiful that at Christmas so much of what we do is about lights. Celebration of lights, lighting up Christmas trees, lighting up your house. One of the things I've been praying is that, God, would you let every single time somebody lights something up at Christmas, even if they don't know any of this stuff, point them to the fact that Jesus, in him is life, and that life is light to this world. It's actually a great thing to pray and share with those who do not know him. Verse 5, in the midst of a darkened world, that light, that life, of Christ shines brighter. In fact, it is unstoppable. The darkness cannot overwhelm it. So John describes the word, that's Jesus, as the only Son of God, the only begotten. We see this repeated again and again in Scripture. In fact, I listed some of these for you in your bulletin. John 1:14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. This is not Jesus as a good man who his disciples later on decided to make him God, like the History Channel would tell you. Uh, Scripture is replete with claims of divinity. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. John 20, verse 31, But these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Apostle John will not allow us to begin anywhere but with the divinity of Christ, that he is truly God. Not, not a good man, not a good teacher, not even uh, someone who is slightly less than God. He is truly God. If you mine out those first five verses in John 1, the message again and again, he is God. He is divine. That's important because this phrase, Son of God, even in John's time, was riddled with problems. Riddled with misbelief in the culture. There were many in Greek and Roman mythology who had claims to be sons of God. Some were this mixture of divine and human, so uh, demigods, things that were uh, somewhere like a half-breed between a god and a man. And our, our, it's interesting, even in our day and age, we still tell those stories. Most of your kids have probably seen uh, movies about Hercules, who was a demigod, somewhere in between. We, we still are fascinated by those stories, I think, because our culture, even though it doesn't know it, is looking for God in the flesh. We're seeking for something. And yet there were also people in that time and age who actually claimed, no, I'm one of those. So a name most of you are familiar with, Alexander the Great, actually claimed that the Egyptian god Amun was his father. Oh, by the way, I'm divine. 
That's why I'm conquering the world. Roman emperors believed they were becoming gods, so much so that by the time you get to Emperor Domitian, he actually declared himself to be a god. By the way, uh, he was the emperor around the same time John is writing this gospel. So right around the same time, John is saying, actually, there is a real God-man. The king, the emperor, the president is saying, that's me. I think that actually gives us hope in a time where we look at our political system and can feel a little bit rattled. Church, we're not looking for a Messiah to rise out of the Republican or Democratic Party. I should probably say that backwards for this area. Maybe just to make the point. We're not looking for a Messiah to come out of the Democratic Party. Church, we're not looking for a Messiah to come out of the Republican Party. Our hope is in Christ. This Jesus, there's sort of two different ways that people have wrongly looked at him. This Jesus is not a God masquerading as a man. So some of those understandings of who God was in these demigods was God masquerading as a man. In other words, divine, but not truly human. There have been heresies throughout church history where they've claimed things like this. So, for instance, one of them that gets mentioned by Peter in the New Testament is the Gnostics, who didn't really believe that the body had any value or worth. So Jesus could not have had a body because those are contaminated. He just appeared to have a body because they thought the spirit was good and the body was evil. Another person from church history is Apollinarius who said he had a body, but he didn't have a human mind. So his mind, if he had a human mind, would have been contaminated with all the things that contaminate our minds. Yet again and again, these have been, contaminate, or have been condemned as heresy. The second misunderstanding is that this is not someone who is lesser than God or created by God. He's not human, but not truly divine. So here's, here's the two errors. He's divine, but not really human, or he's human, but not really divine. So one of my favorite ones on this is a guy from church history called Arius. We call it Arianism today because of his name. That he was created by God and then adopted by God as his son. Here's a fun church history uh, probably fact. I don't know. I like to put it in the, the category of fact. Uh, Arius was spreading this heresy. He was, he was human but not really divine. And so they called a church council. They called all the heads of the church together in 325 A.D., this is really fast after uh, the apostles and all those things. They're, they're going to sort out, that's most church councils were to sort out wrong teaching that had come into the church. At that church council of Nicaea was someone we celebrate named St. Nicholas. Anybody ever heard of him? St. Nicholas was so enraged that Arius would be blaspheming the name of Jesus by saying he's not fully divine that church history, at least in legend, tells us that he punched Arius in the face at the church council. We're going to have a church meeting to sort this out. And Santa gets so ticked, he punched a heretic in the face. Merry Christmas. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm holding tight to it. The biblical claim... Not those two things. The biblical claim is that the incarnation of Jesus was that he was truly God and truly man. Now, one of the ways we have referred to that and periodically do is he's fully God and fully man. 
But one of the things that can be misleading about that is we can almost have this picture of it like a cup, that his cup is full with God and his cup is full with man, except we think about that and we go, well, that's not possible. It's got to be full with one thing or the other. Folks, Jesus is not a cup. He's not anything in this world that we can understand. He was simultaneously truly God and truly man. His two natures were in the incarnation, fused together for all eternity to come, where he fully has a divine nature, fully has a human nature, has a body, has a mind. Dave Mathis, who writes for Desiring God, said this, the eternal Son of God, without ceasing to be God, took on a fully human nature. This is super important. This is not just a Christmas message. This shapes the rest of the way we live the coming year. See, if Jesus was sort of like us, if he was a demigod, so he he wasn't quite human and he wasn't quite divine, he was just sort of something in between, well, then that makes sense why I struggle and he doesn't and why I can give myself a pass. But see, if he's fully God, if he's truly God and he's truly human, well, then he is able to help us in our suffering, that your hope is not in yourself. It is in Christ who has already conquered. Here's the question. Why? Why bother with something like the incarnation? Some of you are like, why did I come to this church this morning? Why are we talking about something that's so difficult to understand? Well, here's the reason. If God's intention was just to save the world, here's the other question. Why didn't he just do it? If God wanted to save all people, especially save sinners, why not do it? Why not just declare you're saved? Like Michael Scott in the office stepping into the hallway declaring bankruptcy. Why not just declare it? For the same reason. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work that just declaring, listen, forgiveness for everybody erases all the debt of sin and the condemnation that comes with it. And yet, most of you don't get the office reference, obviously. I'm guessing you get the Santa reference, right? This is how our society thinks today. They think this is how God works, that he's some beneficent Santa figure who is obliged to give us gifts that we want, no matter if we've been good or bad. Like, yeah, we know the story that Santa gives coal to naughty little children, but let's face it, there are no naughty children. Right? Some of you should give coal to your kids this Christmas. Right? Now, don't do that. Are you, are you tracking with me? But now, now pull that into the way our world thinks about God and salvation. Well, I know I haven't been perfect. I know I've failed this year. But hey, God's super nice, kind of like saying, I'm going to get something anyways. Isn't that how our world thinks about God and his interaction with mankind? Here's what's missing in that. If God just decides to be Santa and say, listen, I've just decided I'm going to be nice to everybody, what is missing from that eternal Christmas equation is justice. See, if God does that, he's not just. If, not, if God is not just, he's not righteous, and therefore he's not God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Someone has to pay. There's several scriptures that say the exact same thing. Nahum chapter 1, Exodus chapter 34, Numbers chapter 14. The, lowest, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. That's where we generally stop. 
Listen, the God I believe in is loving. He would never condemn anyone to hell. Well, that's because you don't actually believe in the God of the Bible. Usually because we haven't bothered to read the Bible. We stop right with the bits that we like, and we don't keep reading. Every single one of those passages goes on to say, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Why? Because if he did, he would be an unjust judge. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God in order to make atonement for the sins of his people. This is not just God saying, Listen, like Santa, I'm going to give you a pass and you're going to get presents anyways. He's saying, Your sin must be paid for and I will pay for it. That is the glory of the incarnation. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. To accomplish the salvation of mankind, the second person of the Trinity put on flesh. Right here is where we should encounter a problem if we're actually thinking. If we're actually thinking. Too often we actually come up with all the wrong theological questions to have problems about. Like, how could one man's death accomplish the salvation of all who would trust in him? Great. So, yes, Jesus died. He died on a cross. He was a great guy. How does that save all who would trust in him? How does one person's death save? Isn't that just unjust that a good person would die for everybody else? How about this question? How could he really be born of a virgin? Like, come on, do we really have to believe that? Leaders in evangelical churches who, by the way, I would say leaders who have become apostate and heretics have stepped away from orthodox faith have said the same thing. It doesn't matter. Listen, it doesn't matter if he was really born of a virgin. Maybe that part's just a story. We're having problems with the wrong part. How could somebody come back from the dead? If he was crucified and the Romans knew how to kill people, did he really come back from the dead? And so certain groups claiming to be Christians have said, actually, he had a spiritual resurrection. That's what really matters. Uh, cult leaders like Oprah say this, by the way. This is Oprah's religion. I, no, I'm not saying he really rose from the dead. I'm saying, like, spiritually. And therefore, we can see that and know that we can rise from our own adversity. That's blasphemy, and Oprah's a heretic. Merry Christmas. <laughs> so here's the problem with the presuppositions to those questions. All right, presupposition is what we're assuming to be true. We think Jesus was a man like you and me. We think he was just like us. Oh, but consider with me, if he was really God, if he was truly God, if he was divine perfect, uncontaminated by sin, eternal, all-powerful, unable to suffer injury or be killed. Consider that one. If that being chose to lay down his life in our place, then it's only reasonable that his death would have a profound impact. In fact, death would not be able to hold back the author of life. If life is in him and that life is the light to all mankind, death cannot hold him. See, the incarnation actually shapes what we believe about the cross and the resurrection. Oh, if he's truly God, then placing a baby in the womb of a virgin is no challenge at all. 
If he's truly God, then his sacrifice would have eternal repercussions. It's exact. Fast forward to July 4th, and you're in your backyard with your family setting off bottle rockets and little fireworks that you bought at the store off just, you know, just down the road. And in the middle of your fireworks demonstration, you light one and an atomic bomb goes off. That is the contrast between one man dying and Christ dying. If he was God, his death would have huge repercussions for everybody. John MacArthur said, what is really under attack when people ask those questions is not the virgin birth or the resurrection, but the incarnation. What they're saying is this is not really God in the flesh. It's one of your fill-in-the-blanks. If Jesus was a good man, that's it. That's all he was. Just a good man. Maybe even partly God, but not not fully God, not truly God. If he was a good man, then his life and message are optional to me. I can take it or leave it. I can take the parts I like. I can leave out the parts I don't like. But if Jesus is, not was, he's eternal. He is ever existing. He is the unchanging king of the universe. If Jesus is the God-man, not a good man, but the God-man, then he demands my worship and obedience. This is why things like the virgin birth come under attack. It's not because they crazy care about science. Consider, we live in a day and age where a virgin giving birth is not outside of the realm of possibility. All it takes is an outside force acting upon her. Is that outside the scope of what our almighty, eternal God can do? No, but see, they don't want an almighty, eternal God because that God demands our worship. So I would call us again, Christian, come and gaze into the wonder of the incarnation, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's another problem we should encounter here. How do we wrestle with this? How can the unchanging God, that's what God says about himself, he's immutable, he's unchangeable. I am the Lord, I do not change. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. How can the unchanging God change in the incarnation? Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I, I want to give us some encouragement and a little bit of instruction. And that is, don't shut your brain off yet. Think deeply about the incarnation. Think deeply about Christmas. And the second half of that is, as you're thinking deeply, acknowledge mystery. This is not something that we can, with our rational minds, fully comprehend, fully wrap ourselves around. Think deeply, but at the same time, acknowledge mystery. Let me give you an example of this. Can we put the, uh, the scripture for Philippians 2 up on the screen? Uh, everybody, take a, take a second. Just look at that screen. How did that image get there? How is that image on the screen that you're seeing, that you're reading in front of you right now? Mysteriously appeared. Right? There's a story in the Old Testament of handwriting upon the wall. In our thoughts, we tend to go from simplicity to complexity and I would urge us, complexity should lead us back to simplicity. The, the correct answer is there's a projector. How many of you have seen the projector? 
How many of you have seen the actual projector? See, you've seen the effects of the projector. How many of you have seen the actual one? It's right up there. You have to either come up on stage, then you can only see in the front. You have to go up into the rafters, then you can see the whole thing. Oh, I get it. It's because there's a projector. That's not the end of the story. See, there's a light bulb in the projector. The projector doesn't do any good unless there's a light bulb in the projector. By the way, projector and a light bulb don't do any good unless there's cables connecting it. What do they connect it to? Well, they run all over the place, and they go back there, and they drop down. They connect to the computer back in the sound booth. Oh, I get it. Projector, light bulb, cables, computer. That's all it takes to put that up there. Great. How's the computer work? Go ahead. Go ahead. How does a computer formulate an image that goes up on the screen? How does that pass through the cables and go into this projector and go through the light bulb to get there? At some point, we say there's complexity, and yet complexity is not made to bog us down in that. It's to lead us back to simplicity. See, if you spent the whole morning just wondering how the light made that image on the screen, you would miss the fact that this image is describing Jesus Christ. See, I didn't put that up there so you would ponder and wonder about how video projectors work. I put it up there so you would marvel over the incarnation of our Savior. That's what the incarnation is supposed to do in us. We look at the complexity and our minds get overwhelmed and it's meant to lead us back to simplicity and say, oh God, you are great and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your ways are higher than mine. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. So have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. By the way, why do we have to tell ourselves to have this mind among us? Because our minds want to do our own thing. We want to come up with our own version of reality and why things are happening in the world around us and how people work and how God's supposed to work and how everything's supposed to work out. He says, you need to start thinking like Jesus thought and gave you the ability to think. He was in the form of God and did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Verse 7 says, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reason for that image being up there is not so you could think about projectors, but you could be reminded that one day every knee will bow before the king of the universe. Let us not fix our gaze on the wrong thing. John MacArthur calls Philippians 2 the theology of Christmas. This is the theological treatise of why the incarnation is true and important. James Denny, commenting on this, says, The New Testament knows nothing of an incarnation which can be defined apart from its relation to atonement. This is not about a baby in a manger. It's about salvation. This is not Bethlehem, but Calvary that is meant to be in focus, the focus of the revelation. And any construction of Christianity which ignores or denies this distorts Christianity by putting it out of focus. At which point, some people are going, come on. Come on, like, is it really that big a deal? Do we have to spend a whole Sunday talking about the incarnation, some, you know, theological, doctrinal idea? Consider with me John, 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. It says, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. That should make our ears perk up. 
How do we recognize if someone has the Spirit of God or does not? How do we recognize a true church from a false church? Here's his answer. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ, it doesn't stop there. Listen, my theology is just Jesus. I've had pastors tell me that. It's just Jesus. Jesus and loving people. No, that's not the test of Scripture. The, The test of Scripture is every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. The incarnation actually becomes the determining factor on whether or not you are in or out. Oh, but look at the next part. Verse 3, But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the, say it with me, church, Antichrist. We hear Antichrist, we're like, Oh no, I saw that movie about him. Right, That dude's bad news. I'm going to accidentally get his mark on my hand or my forehead and like, oh no, now I'm going straight to hell. No, he's not talking about the person of Antichrist. He's talking about the spirit that is anti-Christ. Not just rejecting Christ. It is anti-Christ. I think all we have to do is look around at our world and see What John said then is even more true now. He's already coming into this world. Our culture already hates Jesus and Christianity. And church, I want to suggest to us, if we miss, it's understandable that they miss the incarnation. If we miss the incarnation, that that mysterious hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ, his divine nature, his human nature, then we miss Christianity in whole. If we fail to understand this doctrine, we fail to be an orthodox Christian. And if we distort it or deny it, John would say that's not actually wrong. It's anti-Christ. It is opposed to Christ. It is opposed to the gospel. This is important because it's so prevalent in our day and age. Liberal Christianity says things like this. Well, Jesus was wrong about some things. That should be a problem for us right there. But they go on to say he was wrong about some things because on earth he only had a human nature. Therefore, we can reject some of his teachings. This is exactly what liberal Christianity teaches. Oh, and just by coincidence, those things that we're rejecting just happen to be the exact areas where we want the Bible to change to accommodate our sinful lifestyle. Just a coincidence, though. That's liberal Christianity. Word of faith Christianity says this. Jesus emptied himself. We read, read that a second ago. But here's what that meant. It meant that he laid aside part of his divine nature. That in emptying himself, he ceased to be God in that area just for while he was on the earth. And then when he was resurrected, went into heaven, he took some of those things back to himself. His divine nature, his power, while on earth, he only lived as a spirit-filled man just like you and me. Folks, that is, I think, more dangerous than the first one. That led guys like Kenneth Copeland to say that God told him that since Jesus was just a born, this is a quote, since Jesus was a born-again man like him, by the born-again man accomplished the salvation of people by giving his life on the cross, accomplished the defeating of Satan in that death. God says, here's a quote, if you'd known and had the knowledge of the word of God that he did, you could have done the same thing. Says that about himself. Guys, that's not just heresy, that's blasphemy. That is failing to understand the incarnation and does exactly what John warned us, becomes antichrist. Diminishing Christ and making ourselves great if we can just get in that right 
position. Here's J.I. Packer's answer to that. I would love to have seen J.I. Packer and Kenneth Copeland face-to-face, but I don't think it happened. Here would be his question. How can we say that Christ Jesus was fully God if he lacked some of those divine qualities? We can't. How can we say that he perfectly reflected the Father if some of the Father's powers and attributes were not in him? If emptied himself meant he ceased to be God in any area, he no longer reflects the Father to us. Which is a giant problem if we read John 1.14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen what? His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is not missing anything. Are you, are you catching me, church? This is really important stuff. If he is not fully, truly God while on this earth, or if he's God in some diminished capacity, then number one, he can't fully reveal God as he claimed to. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. If he's not fully God, that's not true. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. Ah, but look at this next part. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side has made him known. If he's not fully God and man, that's not true. The incarnation, if we fail to miss it, tears apart the fabric of Christ. Tears apart the fabric of our salvation. Number two, what he said can't be trusted. Why should we listen to Jesus? If he was only man while on this earth and not fully God, well, then he could be wrong about some things. What things? That should be our question. Was it just things of human history as they see it or the writing of the Bible as liberal critics have seen it? It doesn't stop there. If that's true, then what he said in John chapter 12, verse 49 is wrong. He says, I don't speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say, all that I have spoken. See it in John chapter 7. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. John 14. Uh, Don't you believe that I am of the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say do not. I do not speak of my own authority, but rather it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. John 8, 28. So Jesus said, when you see the Son of Man lifted up, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me to say. See, if he's not fully God, we can't trust what Jesus says. Church, if you can't trust what Jesus says, you're not saved. Here's the third thing. His sacrifice was incomplete. If he's not fully God and fully man, Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. If Christ is truly the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and not just some glorified, spiritualized Santa Claus, then the incarnation is of absolute necessity that we should wrestle with, we should understand, while at the same time remaining incomprehensible mystery. We should, we should stare into the incarnation and see it just enough to worship and marvel just enough 
that we say, God, I cannot even comprehend what you are doing. J.I. Packer again says, the impression of Jesus which the gospel gives is not that he was wholly bereft of divine nature and power, right? That's the, the Jesus not having divine attributes, but that he drew on both his divine and his human nature intermittently while being content for much of the time not to do so. The impression, in other words, is not so much one of deity reduced, but of divine capacities restrained. Oh, here's the mystery, the immutable, unchanging. That's what that word means, unchanging, unable to change eternal God who is spirit, existed in all eternity in perfect triune unity and perfection, but at the incarnation, the second person of that trinity, took on flesh. Did his God nature change? No, that, that's why the church has confessed for centuries that the two natures are unmixed. That it, it's not he's God and then we mix a little human in with it. That which is eternal and divine is unchanged. That's why God can remain immutable and unchanged and yet Christ has taken to himself humanity, took on flesh, joining his divine nature with a human being. It is not subtraction but addition. John Piper, commenting on this, said, this is not a temporary season. When Jesus was man, he had these attributes, and then he goes back to heaven. He kind of shuffles off this mortal coil. No, that's not what we are shown. He says, there will never be a time when the second person of the Trinity does not have a human nature perfectly united with his divine. Our God is spirit, but today Jesus has a body. That's mystery. By the way, that's also good news. Because right now, there is one who knows exactly what it is like to be like you in the midst of suffering and heartache and temptation, and yet he was without sin. And right now, that one with a body is perfectly holy, righteous, pleading your case before his Father. Perfect righteousness. That's why the Nicene Creed says this, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten. Remember the Nicene Creed came out of answering Arius and his heresy. Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Look at verse 9 back in John chapter 1. True light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Oh, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of a man, but of God. Oh, Christian, come and see and wonder at our God-made flesh. As creator, entering his creation, ransoming and redeeming men and women to himself. Rightly does the church sing, oh, come, let us adore him. That is the correct response to the incarnation mystery. It is worship. God, how can this be? How can it be that the eternal God would step down into the squalor and sin, depravity of humanity? Rightly do we sing joy to the world because the Lord has come. Worship team, if you would join me up here. As they come, I want to just give you an encouragement 
And that is don't miss him today. My, my goal in putting this sermon together was to dig much deeper than we normally do on Christmas. I'm going to let you go home and read Luke 2 with your family. You should do that. Read the story of Joseph and Mary coming to Bethlehem. Read the story of angels announcing to lowly shepherds. Of shepherds finding the whole message was true, but that's, that's up to you. Go home and do that. I wanted us to be challenged and stretched, and I hope at some point during this message today you went, I think that went right over my head. That's the point of the mystery of the incarnation. It is way over our head. And yet it should cause us to bow to our knees, to get even lower, not to rise up higher that we might behold and understand and take hold of God, that we might rightly bow and worship before him. If this is truly God who stoops to our level to save, how great, how effective is that sacrifice on your behalf? Not our behalf, your behalf. Man, if that's you, trust in Christ. I know for many of you, this is a difficult season of the year. And I know for many of you, there are struggles going in your life that cause you to have struggles of faith. And I want to say, if your God would go to this great length to save you, trust him. Even if you don't understand how it works, trust him right now. Not later on when I, when I get everything together, right now. If, you're, if your heart is testifying to you, man, yeah, I'm really having troubles with this right now. God, help me trust you. God, forgive me for trusting in myself. For centuries, the church has confessed this to be true. Would you stand to your feet? We're actually going to read a confession of the church. This is from the Athanasian Creed. As we proclaim together the truth of the incarnation, would you read this out loud with me? Now this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and He is human from the essence of His mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. Church, he is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both a rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. Would you pray with me? Lord, our minds cannot comprehend this. We've, we've struggled towards it. We've, we've dug into it this morning, but truly our minds cannot comprehend it. Lord, I don't mean comprehend as, as think about it. I mean comprehend as we run after it, we catch it, we pull it fully to ourselves. God, we cannot fully understand who you are and what it meant for our God to be made flesh. So we just stand in humility before you and say, God, would you help us trust you? 
in the midst of our struggling, would you let us lift our eyes to the incarnation to say, I can trust that God. In the midst of our own frailty and weakness, would you cause us to lift our eyes from our own sinful weakness and inability and look to Christ who was our perfect sacrifice? Who did not have to, but he stooped down to save. Oh God, would you let this time make us greater worshipers, especially, Lord, as we consider that this time we don't see things being made perfect. Your word promises that one day, O God, all things will be placed under his feet. You've said, sit at my right hand until I conquer every foe and every every sin, every trouble, every kingdom, every nation would be placed under his feet. And we say today, God, we don't see that. Sin seems to be rampant in this world. Injustice seems to be rampant in this world. Heartache and loss and suffering seems to be rampant in this world. And so we pray until you place all things under his feet and the last enemy to be defeated will be death. Until that day comes, cause us to trust in the power of this Christ. Even in the midst of our mourning, I pray that we would, God, have a joyful song in our hearts. Lord, joy that says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, and yet we feel the sorrow in the morning, so we still sing, Oh, please come. Oh, come, Emmanuel. Make it quick, God. This world is tough. Lord, this world is mean and unforgiving, and yet you, O oh God, are gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love. So we pray, Lord, would you cause us to trust in you. Not let us trust in you as if we come up with the right answers by ourselves. Would you make us trust in you? When our hearts want something else, make us trust you. When our eyes are distracted to something else, make us look to you. Oh, Jesus, have your place as truly God and truly man, King of the universe, head and Lord and ruler of your church. Let your name be exalted among your people, we pray. Amen. We're going to take communion together. What a beautiful picture. It's not the same picture as the incarnation of of us putting on Christ and becoming joint with him. Yes, we are joined with him. Oh, but this is a beautiful reminder that we have been in Christ adopted into God's family. We've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, that it is not our righteousness, our flesh and blood that causes that. It is his flesh that was broken for ours. It is his blood that was shed for ours. So as we sing together, there's wine on this side, there's juice on that side. Come from the front, make your way back to the seats. But let's acknowledge that we are proclaiming the greatness of our God. And so if you're a Christian, even if you're not part of our church, I know we have visitors here, uh, you are welcome. Come to the table of the Lord. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to come. Not because we want you to feel weird about standing there by yourself, because I want you to wrestle with the question, is this incarnation true? Because if Jesus was just a good man, he has no power over your life. But if he was the God-man, fully God, fully man, who bore your sins to the cross, then he demands your worship. Stand and wrestle with that. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Let's just take a minute and allow God to examine our hearts rightly before we come to the table. If there's sin, just confess it now. And then as we begin to sing, just make your way 
beginning from the front. Take the elements and we'll pray together in a minute.